All right. So prophecy and purpose. I did change this up a little bit because one of the seminars I did Friday really covered the prophecy angle pretty well. So we're going to move further in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and look at uh, another lesson on prophecy that Jesus gives that I think is very relevant to us now. Um, so our scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1 and 2. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. So our message, uh, this last message um, for the conference is entitled Prophecy and Purpose. Prophecy and Purpose. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word now, Lord. I ask, Lord, that you once again make me a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. And Lord, even as there's thunder and lightning outside right now, Lord, protect the technology and the power uh, that, Lord, this word might go through. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. And so we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 3. And, he's, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. And again, the word, the, the Greek word for deceive there is the word planeo. The disciples were perplexed. They wanted to know what the end of the world would be like. And as we went over yesterday, you can go through Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7 says that, they were, that there would be um, famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. It starts by saying that nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It actually explains all of this in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7. Then it says, and all these are the beginning of sorrows. We as Christians are to be prepared for a time of great sorrow. There is a crisis coming. Um, and the crisis <laughs> will not be one to prepare us, but to determine who is who. So let's get into the lesson. We're going to go back to Matthew 25. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Verse 6, and at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage. And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. 
Verse 12 of Matthew 25 says, but he answered and said, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Verse 13 of Matthew 25 is the lesson. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So let's break this parable down, extract the lessons from it, and really look at how we should leave this conference, the attitude we should have um, around our spiritual growth and our spiritual lives. Matthew chapter 25, again, verse one. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Virgins represent believers. Now, these believers are not virgins in the, in the sexual sense. These believers are virgins doctrinally. We know that in the scripture, the, a woman represents a church. So the virgin represents believers. These are people who believe that they, they understand doctrine. The second thing is the lamp is the word of God, right? So the lamp is the word of God. It's the Bible says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And the bridegroom, the groom that is coming is Jesus Christ. So this is how you get the first layer of meaning. In ancient weddings in, in Israel, there was an engagement, um, a betrothal, and then the ceremony. It was the engagement, the betrothal, and then the ceremony. The groom would come and get the bride from the father's house and take her to his, and there would be a great feast. And it was a powerful um, kind of a, a procession that would happen with lights and singing. And as they moved through the town, people would join this procession as the groom left from where he was to go and get the, the, the to go and get his wife to be to bring her back to this great feast. Matthew 25 and verse 2, and five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And note, it's not that five were good and five were bad. It's five were wise and five were foolish. Matthew 25 and verse 3, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. What does the oil represent? It represents the Holy Spirit. It represents the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word for lamp there is lampas, L-A-M-P-A-S in English, lampas. Uh, um, it's uniquely used here. Um, it, was the, it was also probably the word used, it's also the word used for the lamps in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, it was really a torch with a plate with a wick that goes through it so oil could be added and it would keep burning. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. That is critical. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Notice everybody was asleep. They nodded off. They went to sleep. And up until this point, there's really no difference between the five wise and the five foolish. They're all, they all have lamps. They're all dressed for a wedding. They all are standing, waiting around. They all fall asleep. There's no difference between the two. The bridegroom tarries. He takes longer to get to where they are than he's supposed to. And they all fall asleep. But something happens at midnight. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 6. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And so as this procession is coming back from the, 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 the wife's uh, to be's house, 
As they're heading back for this great feast to happen, the 10 of them are sleeping. Someone shouts at the front of the procession, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Everybody gets ready the same way. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. So they stood up those lamps. The wise began to pour oil in it, because by now all the lamps had gone out. The foolish realized there's no they had oil to begin with. They had oil to start the process. Had the bridegroom not tarried, they would have been okay. But because it's been a long while, all the oil is burned out. And they turn, turn to the wise and say, hey, give us some of your oil. We don't have enough. Our lamps are gone out. And he's about to show up. This is from uh, um, one Bible commentator, France. He says, it is a warning addressed specifically to those inside the profession church who are not to assume that their future is unconditionally assured. All 10 are expecting to be at the feast. Until that moment comes, there's no apparent difference between them. Watch this. It is the crisis which will divide the ready from the unready. It is the crisis which will divide the ready from the unready. It is literally the crisis that does it. And here, as we talk about prophecy and purpose, I want everyone to understand that we are, are heading towards a crisis. The reason this conference is happening and the reason we're calling people together is because we're heading into a crisis. And this whole world is about to be thrown into um, disarray. And you can already see it beginning, um, where there's intolerance of even different ideas. There's, there's um, uh, global warming that people are very worried about right now. There's uh, wars, of course, still happening in the world and natural disasters, all that Matthew 24 and verse 7 says. But Matthew 24 and verse 8 says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And then a time of persecution begins. Crisis divides. There are a lot of people who are Christians until the crisis comes. But like I always say, it, if, if you can't be a Christian in the crisis, the crisis really isn't your problem. If you lose Christ because of the crisis, the crisis is not what you ought to be worried about. Even in the crisis, we are to be Christian. And here's the thing. There are, there are layers to this because there are sometimes that the trials and the tribulations, the difficulties come to purify our characters so that we'll be drawn to him. And there are many on, on with us tonight that this is the issue. You are, God is putting you through something. You're going through some challenges. Difficult times are here. And the crisis is to divide. In, in, this, in that case, the crisis divides so that you will begin to be to remove from your character those things that are not pleasing to God. That's the first type of crisis. It divides internally. But the second type of crisis is the crisis that will divide the sheep from the goat. It will divide um, the wise from the foolish and allow the church to be purified itself. Because Christ is coming back for a church. The bridegroom is returning for a church that is without spot or blemish. How do you get there? Well, it says here, but the wise answered saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, 
but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And they said, listen, you got to go buy it yourself. I can't, we can't, we can't give it to you. And I want to give you something here. And um, especially for those who, who, who have, you know, maybe you've been going to church your whole life and you, and you're coming back around. I want you to get that doctrine without the Holy spirit equals empty form and legalism. But if you have an unholy spirit, minus the doctrine, you can become self-empowered and lawless. You need truth and the Holy Spirit to abide at the same time, right? And it's the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says it is God's spirit that leads us into all truth. If we are going to be prepared for the crisis that is coming, we must be studying God's word. That is critical. But we must also be filled with the Holy Spirit because watch this, church, you cannot live on the Holy Spirit of your grandmother or your mother or your spouse or your sibling or who or, or, or whoever it is. You cannot do that. You must have your own oil. And many of us grew up with very faithful, very um, uh, believing parents or grandparents or aunts, uncles, whoever it was. And, and I want to challenge you. Like, like Paul told Timothy, he told him about Eunice and, um, and Lois, but he said, but it dwells in you also in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He said, Timothy, it dwells in you also. He said, and from a young age, Timothy, you have learned the scripture. We must be studying the word, but we must also have the Holy Spirit. In fact, when the spirit of prophecy speaks about the, the, the seal of the living God, she says it is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually. Prophetically, you're facing a time where you and I must know not just the word of God, but we must know it through the power and indwelling of the spirit of God. In the parable, Christ Object Lesson, page 410 to 411. In the parable, all the 10 virgins went out to meet the bridegroom. All had lamps and lamps and vessels for oil. For a time, there was seen no difference between them. So with the church that lives just before Christ's second coming. All have a knowledge of the scriptures. All have heard the message of Christ's near approach and confidently expect his return. But as in the parable, so it is now. A time of waiting intervenes. Faith is tried, and when the cry is heard, behold, the bride cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Many are unready. They have no oil in their vessels with their lamps. They are destitute of the Holy Spirit. They are destitute of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, we'll come back to that. Without the Spirit of God, and a knowledge of his word is of no avail. The theory of truth accompanied by the Holy, unaccompanied, unaccompanied by the Holy Spirit cannot quicken the soul or sanctify the heart. One may be familiar with the commands and promises of the Bible, but unless the Spirit of God sets the truth home, the character will not be transformed. <laughs> Prophecy and purpose. What God is trying to lead us to is a, a dignified, purified, Christ-like character. And that only happens when we are filled with the Holy Ghost. And I want to submit to you as we finish up this beautiful conference that we've just had, it is imperative that when you pray, you pray for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
to be under the power of the Holy Spirit and of that spirit alone. Before you open your Bible to read it, pray for the guiding of the Holy Spirit. You don't just want to know the doctrine in an intellectual sense. Your character must be transformed. And that only happens as the Holy Spirit does the transforming. So as we're excited as we leave the conference, remember, it is utterly important. We have the Spirit of God working in us. This is what Christ Object Lessons 410 to 411 finishes by saying, without the enlightenment of the Spirit, men will not be able to distinguish truth from error, and they will fall under the masterful temptations of Satan. Why is this world in the condition it's in? Prophetically, why is wickedness running so rampant? Jesus says, like it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes, as it was with the, in the days of Lot, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. What is it that happens? It is the Spirit of God now being withdrawn from the earth. Lawlessness runs wild. As I talked about in one of the seminars, um, as Jay-Z wore on his shirt, do as thou wilt, right? Which comes from the old statement from the, from the dark side where they say, you know, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Your law is just to do whatever you want. And as the spirit of God is removed, men will be bound in deception. They will believe up is down and down is up. Common sense will go out of the window. And the only safeguard we will have is that we know our Bible and we are filled with the Holy Ghost. That's right. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Without the enlightenment of the Spirit, men will not be able to distinguish truth from error. And that's why so many now believe lies about sex and sexuality about um, even race and, and, and equality and justice. And they, they believe all kinds of things because they are not under the power of the Holy Spirit. And spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Matthew 25 and verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and they that were ready went in with him to do the marriage and the door was shut. What this is speaking to prophetically is that the day is coming when probation is going to close. The day is coming when God will, 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 will the declaration will be made in the heavenly courts. He that is just, let him be, un, let, he that is just, let him be just still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. But he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. The day comes when probation closes, when Christ steps out of the most holy part of the temple, of the sanctuary in heaven, when he takes off his priestly robe and he puts on his kingly robe and he gets on his white horse, Revelation talks about, and he takes the hosts of heaven to come to earth to redeem us from the earth. One day probation closes. It closed on the antediluvian world. And only Noah, only eight of them were saved in the ark. It closed on the cities of Sodom and the plain. And only Lot and his two daughters were dragged out. One day this world is going to be shut down. And you can't wait till the time comes when you realize Jesus is about to return to say, okay, now I'm going to be, get ready. Because that's what the foolish did. The foolish are the, uh, give the example of spiritual procrastination. 
believing that I can get my life right with God tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and you say tomorrow again. Matthew 25 and verse 11. Afterward came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. When Jesus comes, we'll talk about this here in a second, but when Christ returns, he's coming for people he knows. How does he know them? Because they have his character. They look like him in character. There's a lot of talk now. I mean, in a lot of churches, they're trying to make Jesus look like them. They're, you know, in black churches, Jesus got to look black. In white churches, he's supposed to look white. And there are arguments going on back and forth about what color Jesus was. Let me tell you something. Looking like Jesus physically is not going to do you any good. We must look like Christ in character. We must have his character. Ephesians 5, 18 says, and be not drunk with the wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I talked about this earlier in the week, but I can tell you for a lot of folk, there's a hole in them. And as I mentioned, God made the human heart so big, only he can fill it. God made the human heart so big, only he can fill it. It is imperative that instead of trying to fill the God-sized hole in your heart with alcohol and marijuana and all the other drugs, ecstasy and speed and all the other stuff the world takes, rather than with food or even with sex or gambling, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, the reason it says, and be not drunk with the wine wherein is excess, is because the more you try and fill the God-sized hole in your heart with the things of this world, the emptier you feel. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. Hmm. She says the class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. They are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old nature to be broken up. Did you see that? She says, listen. They have not yielded to the Holy Spirit working. What is the Holy Spirit? What would it have done? It would help them. They need to fall on the rock, Christ Jesus, and permit their old nature to be broken up. Who were you? You ought not be anymore. Let the old nature be broken up. This class are represented also by the stony ground hearers. They receive the word with readiness, but they fail of assimilating its principles. Its influence is not abiding. She goes on to say, the spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and consent, implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. They do not know God. Do not, do not leave the conference and leave yourself uh, thinking that you can just do a superficial work. What needs to happen now is deep work, it's deep cleaning, a deep knowledge of God. The five foolish don't know God, but they think they do. And I wanna submit to you, 
The spirit is going to work on your heart relative to your commitment to him. And your consent to getting a new nature. God's spirit wants to work in your heart. Here's what it says. They have studied his character. They have not held communion with him. They have not studied his character, the character of Christ. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. Their service to God degenerates into form. It just becomes, eh, we just do what we do because we're supposed to do it. But I like what it said here. Therefore, they do not know to trust how to look and live. You've, you've got to study his character because by beholding, we become changed. Christ Object Lesson, page 411 again. They come unto thee as the people cometh. They sit before thee as my people and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. Ezekiel 33, 31. The Apostle Paul points out that this will be the special characteristic of those who live just before Christ's second coming. He says, in the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. What power is it that they're denying? They have a form of godliness. They're activists. They're into um, equality, and, and they're into... Um, social justice, and they've got all this wonderful uh, modern-day moral trappings, but the power of God that would actually transform the character they deny, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so instead of choosing Christ, just as in ancient Israel, just as Bar Barabbas and Jesus were on either side of, of Pilate, and he said, who shall I release unto you? There are many today who are going to choose Barabbas because he was the activist. He was the rebel rouser. He was the one that was going to throw off the yoke of these horrible Romans who are so unjust. I want to submit to you. Don't get caught in the weeds of our day. Choose Christ, not Barabbas. Now, let me say this. There are many a cause that we need to get involved with to help in our world. I'm not saying that we don't, but I am saying that ultimately realize that the work that God has for us is the work of leading men not to a better, simply to a better life now, but to eternal life with God. This is the class that in time of peril are found crying, peace and safety. They lull their hearts into security and dream not of danger. When startled from their lethargy, they discern their destitution and entreat others to supply their lack. But in spiritual things, no man can make up another's deficiency. But in spiritual things, no man can make up another's deficiency. Let me tell you something, church. You're going to hear people say, well, you don't have to worry about anything. God loves you. Jesus is love. They're crying peace and safety. They lull their hearts into security and dream not of danger. But I'm here to tell you that one day the door is going to shut. One day probation is going to close. And each one of us, the Bible said, is appointed to every man to die. And then the judgment one day we will all have to stand before the judgment seat of the living God. And that's not going to be time to get things right. Now is. Now is the time to make your calling and your election sure in Christ Jesus. Now is the time to say, Lord, I want the character of Christ.
send your Holy Spirit to abide in me. I don't know how to do this, Lord, and I clearly can't do it in my strength, but I need your Holy Spirit to abide with me. Now watch this. Great Controversy, page uh, 530. Satan is well aware that the weakest soul who abides in Christ is more than a match for the hosts of darkness. And that, should he reveal himself openly, he would be met and resisted. Therefore, he seeks to draw away the soldiers of the cross from their strong fortification. John, 1 John 3 and verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. I want to leave you with some steps here. Number one, abide in Christ. What does that mean? That means you, you set up a lifestyle around knowing Jesus Christ. It means you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, so that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You abide in him. That means you're studying the Bible. But in particular, you're reading the Gospels. You're reading them over and over. My favorite is the Gospel of John in which you find the story um, of the woman caught in the act of adultery. You find the, the, uh, the woman at the well. You find uh, Lazarus. Uh, you find great stories in the book of John. And when you read it and you begin to get to know Jesus, not the Jesus people told you about, um, you get you read it. Then you get you read the book, The Desire of Ages. You get Bible commentaries on the book, and you begin to really dig deep, and you really start to learn who Jesus was, uh, what made him tick, how did he treat other people. When you abide in Him, all of a sudden, as you're focusing on Christ, sin becomes more sinful. As you as you draw closer to Christ, the things of this earth grow dim. Uh, uh, the shackles that once bound you begin to fall off. So the first thing you got to do is you got to learn to start abiding in Christ. You got to focus on him. You've got to come up with a devotional life. And if you need help, talk to someone who can help you, guide you through that. But that is the first step. The second thing is you got to stop dwelling on yourself, especially on your past, your past trauma, your past failures, your past mistakes. Steps to Christ, page 71 says this. When the mind dwells upon self, it is turned away from Christ, the source of strength and life. Hence, it is Satan's constant effort to keep the attention diverted from the Savior and thus prevent the union and communion of the soul with Christ. It is Satan's constant effort to keep the attention diverted from the Savior. And that means he will use everything. He will use your ex-lover. Uh, he will use your family members. He will use your drinking buddies. He will use whatever he has to use to divert you away. But one of the most simple tactics he has is to simply have you not focusing on Christ because you're focusing on yourself, because you're, you're, you're focusing on how many times you've failed. You're focusing on how many times you've messed up. You're focusing on what you've labeled yourself. You're focusing on where you've been. And I want to submit to you that if you if you focus on him, on Christ instead, none of that matters. But you know what my Bible teaches me? That he will take your sin, cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. The Bible says, and God will remember your sin no more. When you are justified, it is just as if you never sinned. See, justice is you get what you deserve. Mercy is... You don't get what you deserve, meaning the wages of sin is death. Mercy says you don't get what you deserve. 
Grace says you get what you didn't deserve, heaven and eternal life and, and, and love and the love of Christ. But when you're justified, it is just as if you never sinned. He washes you white as snow. And it's like there was never a stain of sin on you. This is why the devil wants you constantly focusing on who you were. Because he doesn't want you to think about where you're going and who you are in Christ. And let me remind you, when the devil reminds you of your past, I give you permission and I pray the Holy Ghost power that you learn to remind the devil of his future. Also from Steps to Christ here, five things that pull people away in the last days. One, the pleasures of the world. Life's cares, perplexities, and sorrows. And these can be things that you need to do. So the pleasures of the world, you, you've covered, we've covered. I mean, you know the devil's going to try and pull you away with all the excitement of the world, the music, the entertainment, the, the drugs, the alcohol, the the, 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 the the sexuality and the sex of the world of today, and all the pleasures of the world. He's going to try and lure you away with all of it. But he'll also try and get you with life's cares, perplexities, and sorrows. Things that you, you have to deal with. He will try and make them so big that that's all you focus on. But this is why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in spirit. He says, for my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't let the cares of this, this is why we keep a Sabbath, because we need we take a break from the cares of this world. But the third one is the faults of others. This, what, what have other people done to you that will turn you away from Christ? Or what might they do to you to turn you away? Listen, when people call you names, ignore them. When people hate on you, especially as, you, as some of you are transforming to being Christian and being better Christians, they're going to, people are going to call you names. They're going to attack you. Things are going to come after you. Let me tell you something. When the people come at you like that, pray for them. Have the character of Christ. Pray for our enemies. Pray for those who attack us. Ask for them to come to know Jesus Christ as their savior. But number four, the thing that will turn away the soul from the source of our strength is our own faults and imperfections. Satan will, is the accuser. He will remind us of these things. But look at number five, anxiety and fear as to whether we shall be saved. Satan wants you to doubt whether or not you are saved. And I want to tell you that this is where faith is so important. This is why righteousness is by faith. There's no reason to be anxious or fearful about your salvation. If you leave it in Jesus' hands and stay at the foot of the cross, the Bible, my Bible tells me that he that has begun a good thing in us will see it through to our, its completion. The Bible also says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Don't waste your time worrying if you're saved. Spend your time with the Savior. All this turns the soul away from the source of our strength. Last couple things. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. I want to submit to you that you can overcome by the blood of the lamb. I want to submit to you that you can overcome by the word of your testimony. 
as you've heard these testimonies through this conference, understand that there's power, not just in hearing the testimony, but in sharing a testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. We are going to have to sing the song of Moses and the lamb. Moses said, listen, Lord, you can take me, but let the children of Israel live. The lamb came and died so that we would live. We are going to have to stand in the gap for others. With Once we are washed with the blood of the lamb, once we have a testimony, we are going to have to be bold and stand up and speak the word. We're going to have to put ourselves in jeopardy. We're going to have to run into harm's way in order to be there and in order to, um, to be able to make intercession for those who are still in bondage that God wants to save. But here's what's powerful. You overcome. You overcome by sharing that testimony. Revelation 12, 12 at the end says, the devil has come down unto you having great wrath. He's very angry because he knows that he has a short time. So church don't behave like we've got all the time in the world. The devil understands he has a short time. That's why he's causing all the havoc and madness he's causing in this world because he gets how little time he has. We can't behave like we got all the time in the world. It's time for us to get our lives right and to live for Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this. Know ye not? The day which run in a race, run all. But one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Paul says, don't you know everybody who gets down to run a race in the Olympics, every one of them is looking to get the gold medal? He says, run the race like you want to win the race. Don't get into the race and then be sloppy with it. He says, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. I've had cousin, cousins who play pro ball and friends who have done very well athletically. Let me tell you something, they're temperate. They will hold back doing certain things so that they can gain the mastery, so they can win the Super Bowl or the national championship or whatever it is. Paul says they do all of that to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So if they're doing that to get a corruptible crown, how committed should we be to the fact that the race that we're running ends with us getting an incorruptible crown? Paul says, I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Paul says, but I keep under my body. I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertain. I'm not just running random, all zigzag all over the place. I'm not shadow boxing. He says, I keep under my body. Remember what I said earlier in the week, your body will conspire to kill you. If you give yourself everything you crave, everything you desire, from Ben and Jerry's to, to drugs, to alcohol, to fast food, to, to illicit relationships, if you give yourself everything you want, your body will conspire to kill you. Paul says, I, I beat down my body. Why? Lest that by any means... When I preach this great gospel to, to others, I myself should be 
a castaway. The Greek word for castaway there is the word adakemos. It means to be disqualified. Listen, you don't want to get all you got this week at this conference. And then in the final analysis, wind up that you are a dakemos, that you missed your opportunity with God. Now is the time. Run the race like you mean it. And don't worry, the beautiful thing about the race is all you got to do is put one foot in front of the other. The scripture even says a just man falls seven times and rises every time. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. I'm not telling you got to get up and run like Usain Bolt right out of the gate. What I'm telling you is that you got to put one foot in front of the other day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, always moving in the direction of Christ. Because that's what's going to gain the victory. That's what's going to get you where you need to be. As you draw closer to him, he comes running to you. And as he runs to you and you see him in his fullness, the things of this earth will no longer be as valuable as they are now. The relationships, you, the relationship that will matter most to you is the, your relationship with Christ Jesus. Any addiction, any bad habits, all of a sudden, you want to please Christ. And now you got the, that feeling of completeness that comes with him. We'll close with one of my favorite um, sermon stories. Um, there's a story of a, of a young man who went to play poker. And when he went to play poker at this house uh, or wherever he went to go play poker, it's a true story. Um, he got into an argument with a guy sitting across the table from him. And as he was arguing with this guy, the, 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 the key person in the story reaches down, gets a gun, and after having had a few drinks, he points the gun across the table and shoots and kills the guy sitting across from him. Cold-blooded murder with witnesses. The police come and get him, take him to prison, take him to jail first. He goes through that process. He's tried and convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death in the electric chair. While all of that was going on, and as, he, and as he starts to spend and do his time in the state penitentiary, his family has been writing out petitions and advocating to try and get him to, ha to have a stay of execution and do life in prison. They just wanted him to be alive. They wanted him to stay in prison and be alive. And so they start with the petitions. And everyone in the house signs it, and then in the next house, and the next house, and the whole street signs it. Everyone knew this kid growing up. They knew he wasn't really a bad person. He'd gone away. He'd made some mistakes, but they didn't think he should die in an electric chair. They figured he could stay in prison the rest of his life. That was a fair outcome. And so everyone on the street signed it. Then the next street. Then the whole block signed it. Then the next block. So the whole town signed it, it seemed. And then the next town and the next time till, till counties were signing it and the next county. And finally, one day, the governor is sitting in his desk in his office. Boxes of petitions come become uh, brought in by the, by the, by, uh, to the governor's office. The governor was a Christian, and he picks this up, and he begins to read the, the letter from the family, and he looks through the petitions, and he realizes 
how many of the of the residents of the state really want mercy to happen for this man the governor is the only one with the power to change this man's outcome so the governor is a christian and he sits back down on his desk and he writes out a full pardon for by now years had passed he writes out a full pardon for this young man the governor the day comes when the governor wants to deliver this full pardon to the young man. He decides the best way to do so would be dressed up like a pastor. And so he goes in the closet and he slips on a pastor's robe. He goes down and jumps into the into the um, limousine waiting for him, slips the, keeps, keeps hold of the envelope with the pardon, and he's whisked off from the governor's mansion to the state penitentiary where the warden is waiting for him outside. He explains to the warden what he's doing. The warden leads him up to death row, points out the cell where the young man is, and the warden says, listen, I'm going to take you. And the governor says, nope, let me walk by myself down to this cell. And as the governor walks down to the cell, down death row, he gets down to where this young man is being held. The door comes open. The governor goes to walk into the cell, and the young man jumps up off of his cot and says, get out. The governor says, hold on, I've got good news for you. The young man says, get out. The governor says, you don't understand, I've got good news. The young man says, I was running, look where it's landed me, get out. The governor again says, you don't understand, I've got news, I've got good news. The young man said, you're the third or fourth preacher to come in the last week or two, get out. The governor tries one more time. He says, young man, you don't understand. I've got good news. The young man says, if you don't get out, I'm calling the warden and the guards and I'm gonna have you put out. The governor's head drops, pushes the envelope deeper back into his pocket, turns and walks out of the cell. The warden meets him at the end of death row, and escorts him back to the limousine where the governor's whisked back off to the governor's mansion. The warden is so happy, he comes running up the stairs, running down death row, runs into this young man's cell, sits down on the cot, and says, young man, how did your visit with the governor go? The young man says, you mean that guy that just left who was dressed up like a preacher? That was the governor? The warden says, yep. Not only was that the governor, but he had written a full pardon out for you. The young man says, what? He says, quick, give me pen, give me paper. And the young man begins to write, dear governor, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was you. The letter's mailed to the governor. And when it gets to his desk, the governor with tears streaming down his face, reads the letter and turns it over and writes on the back, no longer interested in this case. The day comes for this young man to face the electric chair they bring him there into the room where it happens. They ask him, is there anything you want to say before you go into the chair? The young man looks at the cameras and the microphone set up from the news agencies. And he says, tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer. Tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because of what I did wrong. 
He says, tell the young men of America that I'm dying because I refused to accept the part. Every one of us is like that young man. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all failed. But the great governor of the universe came to earth dressed in the, in the, in the flesh of a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, lived a sinless life and died on Calvary Street. And with his blood, he wrote out a full pardon for each and every one of us. Is accept the pardon. Prophecy and purpose. You see, the five foolish virgins thought they could get out, get by on their own strength and had no oil. I'm telling you that when you accept the pardon, you accept the Holy Spirit, it begins to work in you. When you accept the pardon, God begins to move on your heart. And I want to challenge you today Reach out to the coordinators of this conference if you're ready to accept the pardon. If you're ready to take a stand to live for Jesus Christ, to be a Christian. That was a true story, that young man, about that young man. And for every one of us, one day, we will have to stand before the judgment seat of the living God. But you don't have to stand there on your own merits. We can stand there on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A pardon has been written for you. Will you accept the pardon? We receive Christ into your heart and life and have him transform your character, make you over again. This is the time, church. This is the time to fill your lamp with oil. For the bridegroom cometh and he will not tarry. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. And I thank you, Lord, that you are soon to return and that a pardon has been written. That right now we can have oil put in our lamps and be like the wise virgins. Lord, help us to be ready for your soon return. Let not the crisis shake us out. But Father God, let the crisis purify us first. Then let crisis show that we are loyal to you. Somebody that's been on this week in this conference has had their struggles, they have their issues, they have their difficulties, they have their challenges, but you love every single one of us and you know the challenges and difficulties they face. Father God, I pray for your Holy Spirit on each of those individuals that they would choose you. Look into the face of Christ and that they would accept the pardon. So our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name, let the church say amen and amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Walsh. It's really tough to follow you, especially after you've given such a message. Um, you know, uh, the whole story about the 10 virgins and, and that process, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know the circumstances of the situation, but
but it's interesting that that 10 were wise or five were wise. And, you know, how is it that we can be wise during this age and to not know the difference and how that oil is not transferable? Thank you for breaking that down the way you did. Powerful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. All right. So you have heard the conclusion. You have heard everything that's been presented here. And I, I pray that you've been uh, inspired, enlightened, and equipped. And we're going to create a, a library of resources for you to utilize, to, to share with friends and um, with people that you think may be interested. And, and I hope that what you've discovered is that we're not just focused on the LGBT thing, that this is talking about all of us. It has an application for all of us. There's been a condescension, I think, in Christianity for a long time that has actually fueled what I would call the the uh, the sexual revolution or this movement that Christians in their condescension have been unloving, been unkind, uh, and we have misrepresented truly the, the nature of Christ for a long time that that people have walked out of the church and me and and like many others, we walked out of the church because we couldn't find uh, compassion. We couldn't find truth. We couldn't find the power of Jesus Christ that is still alive today. But um, I want to share with you something in, in a, a closing comment or whatever. And this morning I was actually walking with my friend Rebecca and um, we were walking and she lives in the mountains of Tennessee in the Chattanooga area. And we found some horses and we were petting these horses and walking. We seen the beautiful foliage and it's very cold. We were all bundled up. And as we're walking this morning, uh, we were, you know, talking about the beautiful leaves. And um, in Patriarchs and Prophets on page 62, Ellen White talks about how when Adam and Eve um, saw the first wilting leaf on a tree, that they grieved over that leaf as if uh, the same way that some people actually grieve over the dead. And Rebecca reminded me of that as we were looking at these leaves and uh, the wind was dropping the leaves. But then all of a sudden I looked up and I saw this huge red bush and it was like, as if it was on fire. It was a beautiful sunny day. And this beautiful red bush was just a flame and bright red. And of course it's in the process of dying as well. And we are talking about that, how Adam and Eve had never even seen anything deteriorate. And so um, I want to leave you with that for just a moment, but then I want to talk about there was a man that um, that had a really rough life. He, he said that the image of his father was so mean. He was just, he, he said he didn't have the gene to be a father. And so his father sent him to a boarding school by the time he was six years old. He was molested by some of the boys in this orphanage. And he said that even by the age of six, that he had become that he had become a, um, an abuser himself of other little boys in this orphanage. Uh, a rough life, a very rough start, eventually becoming sexually addicted, addicted to um, pornography. His wife caught him in a relationship with, his best, with her best friend. And he said, all right, you know, it, let's just have it all out. Let me, let me just tell you everything about my life. And he went through all these steps of talking about the abuse and, you know, the neglect and, and, um, and just how difficult his life was. And his wife told him after he exhausted everything, he said, she said, I will never trust another thing that comes out of your mouth for as long as you live. This man was wiped out and devastated. The moment he finally, you know, confessed everything that had been on his heart and his mind his whole life. Um, now he's just worthless and, and uh, he has 
hurt and abandoned his love. He's feeling guilt and shame, all of this stuff. He, he said to his friend later, he said, I felt like a little piece of animal waste, like for lack of a better word for a turd. And he said, and I feel like I'm meaningless and I'm hopeless. And he said, and eventually I'll just dry up and the wind will just take me away and I'll never exist again. And in his devastation and in his darkness, he was sitting there with these thoughts and his friend looked at him and trying to, to find some type of compassion. She reached over to him and she said, well, you know, if there's a seed in that little piece of animal waste, she said, and, and if it starts to blow away, she said, that seed can take root and it can germinate and new life can come forward. Something new can begin. And I think that those were the most beautiful words that this person could have shared. And the point that I want to make is that, you know, as I was looking at the leaves today with my friend Rebecca and thinking about how everything has to die, I looked at Rebecca when I saw that red flame bush and I said, you know what? I said, even death can be beautiful. And then the Lord just impressed me that, yes, that all four seasons of the year, like uh, fall, winter, spring and summer, all have a yearly cycle. Every year we're reminded that the earth dies and then new life comes forth. And so I think that this, um, this story really has an application in that, is that when we die, when we die and we take that death, of course, there's that, that winter period where everything is completely dead. Everything that we've known is completely dead. But how beautiful that in the spring, then new life starts to come forth. And then as new life comes forth, and that's the power of Jesus Christ, that when we die in Jesus, then we're raised to a new life, which is represented as spring. And then as, as, the, as the gardener continues to fertilize the soil and water the soil, and it brings forth crops, and then eventually the crops bring forth fruit. And, and if you heard Yvonne Restrepo's workshop and, and her presentations talking about the roots affecting the fruit, then what happens is this fruit comes forward and it's beautiful and it feeds more life and it creates more life by more seeds that are scattered in the fall when everything dies through winter and then once again spring happens. I think that it's a beautiful example that we get to know that when we die in Christ, that we have the assurance and we have the promise that in the spring we will bring forth new life. I, I think that there's beauty in death. And unfortunately, what we're hearing now in the world is that you can do whatever you want, that whatever you want, and God still loves you. And unfortunately, we have missed something really profound. Because in living the life we want, God will always respect my right to choose. I, I have the right to choose whatever I want. He gave me free will, and he will respect that. He will always respect my right to choose as, as he will yours. But you know, it doesn't negate the fact that we have to suffer the consequences of those choices. So while I have the right to choose whatever I want, it doesn't negate the fact that I will have to suffer the consequences of those choices. And he allows me to do that. I want to share with you something in closing, and I want to go to um, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 1. And if you look at it, it says, In that day seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own bread and we will wear our own apparel. Only give us your name to save us from reproach. Let me, 
let me break that down for just a second. So in that day, seven women, a, a woman is represented as a church. So you have these churches and 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 is the affirmation that a woman represents a church, will take hold of one man. So these women want to marry this man. He's the groom. And so the groom in Matthew 9, 15 is represented as Jesus Christ. So these women or these churches, they say to the groom, to Jesus, they go, um, we will eat our own bread. Well, what does bread represent? In Matthew chapter four and verse four, the bread represents the word of God. So these women have rejected God's word and they want to eat their own bread. They want to read what they want to read. They, they, they provide their own truth. And they say, and, and we will provide our own clothes, meaning they've refused the wedding garment. So if they refuse the wedding garment, we know that, uh, that that's also a rejection of Christ's righteousness when we look at the parable of the man that was at the wedding feast without the wedding garment. So here you have seven churches wanting to have the name of Jesus Christ, but they're not going to read the Bible and they're refusing the robe of righteousness. And you know, that's a really sad reality, I think, to the times in which we're living now. These are people that refuse to die. These are people that refuse to submit themselves to the, to the death that is so necessary to get the life from Jesus that will bring us joy, which will bring us peace, which will bring us happiness. In closing, chapter um, three of Second Timothy, I, I, I want to leave it here because this was really profound for me, and I want to share that with you. It says there will be terrible times in the last days. <laughs> Isn't that us? Aren't we living in the last days? For for any Christian, we know that we are living in those perilous times. If you if you heard my friend uh, Eric Walsh's uh, sermon just now, we know that these are the days in which we're living in. But verse two it says people will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. Does that sound like a safe place to you? They'll be unforgiving, slanderers, gossipers, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in verse 5, it says that they have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof. What do you think the power is that they're denying? And I've been asking a lot of people this and some of the answers that I get as I talk about, um, you know, different things. But, but the one thing that really stands out to me is the power that I need on a daily basis, every moment that I'm in, you know, that I'm living, that I'm awake, I need the power of Christ of what he accomplished on the cross to give me the strength to overcome my, my thoughts, my feelings, my history, and my memory to give me new thoughts and new feelings and new actions. And so isn't it interesting that there's a form, there's a, there's a people that have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of Jesus Christ to overcome their temptations. That means that because of their pride, their pride, isn't it interesting that the LGBT community uses pride as their slogan, but by refusing to surrender my pride, I refuse to die to myself, to my thoughts, to my feelings, to my history, my memory. And therefore, by denying the power, we're misrepresenting what Jesus accomplished on that cross. I don't believe that that's a message from God. I believe that that's a message from the enemy to deceive us. And the final warning in verse five in 2 Timothy chapter three, it says from this group of people, stay far away. 
Brothers and sisters, you have a very difficult decision to make. I've made mine. And it cost me a lot. It cost me my career, cost me my job that I had, it cost me my boyfriend as I became baptized with a boyfriend and a sexual addiction. It cost me everything that I created in the 40 years that I lived before. But what did I get when I gave Jesus everything? What I got from Jesus when I gave up everything is for the first time in my life, I finally got victory over a sexual addiction that was out of control. What I got from Jesus is a peace that I've never known before. And for the last 20 years, 21 years, I now have experienced something far greater that keeps me solid. And you know what? The thoughts come in my head. I, I'm not immune to the temptations of the world and the devil taunts me and teases me just like he did our own savior, that there's a whole world out there that I could have if I wanted. And so if, if Jesus didn't provide for me, excuse me, If Jesus didn't provide for me something better than what I've experienced in the 20 years that I lived in the gay culture, I'd be back in it. And I find it so profound that even some of my friends have gone back into the world, some of uh, my acquaintances, some of the people that have come through coming out ministries that have, you know, sought our help and, and sought our, um, our, uh, our counsel and our guidance. You know, they've chosen to go back into the world. And you know what? They have the right to, just like I do. But if Jesus wasn't giving me something better than what I had experienced in the world, I'd be there too. I guarantee you that when you decide to take Jesus into your heart, that he's already there. Just the thought that you have in your mind that maybe I should consider going to Jesus, that's not a thought from you. That's an invitation from the Holy Spirit. A friend of mine was uh, on the verge and he was a prostitute and also a homosexual. And he'd been living that life for a long time. And he was going to these, these evangelistic series and he could hear the, the invitation of the Holy Spirit to come to him. And as he sat there in those meetings, he, he wouldn't go forward. He wouldn't accept the, the offer to come forward and to give Jesus his life. And it took several months. And one day, the moment that he actually decided to give Jesus his heart, when he stood up and he accepted that invitation in his mind, he had this picture of Jesus sitting on the throne and that Jesus is on the edge of his seat. And at the moment that he said, fine, I'll give my heart to the Lord, it was like Jesus was rushing to get to his aid, that Jesus was tripping over himself to get to him because that's how desperate Jesus is to save each one of us. From ourselves. You know, death can be a beautiful thing. That death and the resurrection that Jesus took by taking on my death so that I could have his life. You know what? It's worth it. And I would invite you that if you haven't experienced that yet, that all you have to do is, is give him your heart and ask him. Ask him to show you the truth. Ask him to give you the strength. And he will. And from Coming Out Ministries and myself, I want to thank you for taking the time to watch our presentations and our program. And if you need us for anything, we're here. We're available to you. We have uh, prayer lines. We have uh, a former's line for people that come together that need a community, a safe place to talk about what the truth really is. Because you know what? It's not from gay to straight. It's from lost to saved. It's from rebel 
to a servant. And becoming a servant of Jesus Christ is far greater than anything I've ever experienced in this world. And I have the promise of something so much more. Thank you for coming. God bless you and we'll see you soon. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.